your Bibles, would you take them and turn to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea is the first of what we call the minor prophets. Not minor in importance, but just minor in that they are shorter books than the major prophets. So it's the first of all those small books that we don't spend a whole lot of time in. If you find the larger prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, Hosea is the next book after Daniel. I wonder if you know the name of the first book in the New Testament. Easy question. We all refer to it as Matthew, of course, but did you know the full name of that book is the Gospel According to Matthew? Just like Mark, the full name is the Gospel According to Mark, the Gospel According to Luke. Well, anytime I think of the book of Hosea, I think this name of this book ought to be the Gospel According to Hosea. Because one of the things we see in this book, although it's an Old Testament book, although it was written over 700 years before Christ was born, nevertheless, this book gives us such a clear picture of God's love for his sinful people and his willingness to sacrifice himself for their behalf. It gives us a picture of sin. It gives us a picture of grace. It paints a portrait of redemption in very colorful terms so that even as we read this book of Hosea together, and I know for many of us it will be unfamiliar, for many of us it might even feel a little intimidating to dive into one of these dusty corners of our Bibles, but nevertheless, what we see is a picture of God and His grace, His love for His people despite their sin, and I'm excited for us to spend a number of weeks learning the book of Hosea, learning what it has to teach us, and seeing more and more of God and His love for us through this book. So today we're going to read Hosea chapter 1, and as is our custom, let me ask, would you join me if you're able in standing for the reading of God's word today? Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Be'eri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name, Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, 
and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let me add chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we approach this portion of your word, we would sincerely ask that by the power of your spirit, you will add your blessing to the reading of it. That we would not merely read the words only, but Father, that we would understand, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see wonderful things, that your spirit will take this word and impress it on our hearts, that we might see the God who is presented to us here, that we might have a new love for you through it, Lord, that you might draw us closer to yourself, that we might gain through this text a new hatred for our own sinfulness, a new desire to live a life of holiness, a new desire to love the Lord our God who has redeemed us and rescued us, who has called us to himself and has said to us when we had no right to hear it, you are my children. And so, Father, we ask, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you speak it yourself to us today? We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you weren't a little nervous about spending 14 weeks in Hosea before, perhaps now you are, now that you've heard one of the chapters. But I want to begin by telling you what some of my prayers and desires for this series are. One of my great prayers is that the Lord will use a series through the book of Hosea to renew us, to renew his people, to to open up our hearts that might have grown tired, that just through the weariness and the burdensomeness of living in this life can grow weary, can grow uh, exhausted, can grow overly familiar sometimes with the divine things, and we stop sensing the wonder of them, that God himself, who is holy, who is transcendent, who is the creator, would love us, his sinful people, who are so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God we love, and yet God, in his grace and in his mercy, continues to pursue us. Not just to hold out the free offer of his love, but, but actually to pursue us, to hunt us down and to chase after us with that. That's what David says in Psalm 23 when he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's not passive, that's active. That goodness and mercy of the Lord will actively be following him all the days of his life in order that he might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so my prayer, even as we go through Hosea, there will be chapters that are, are easy and there will be some that are a little uh, hard to understand at first. But my prayer is that the Lord will use these words to revive our hearts, to draw us back to him, to give us a new vision of him, a new understanding, a new depth of our understanding of his love and his mercy for even people like us. And so I want to walk us through this first chapter and try to give a bit of a overview of the book of Hosea and what exactly is this story that has gotten off to such a, a peculiar start. And I want to point out four things in this chapter. Uh, the nature of sin, the character of God, God's judgments on sin, and then the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. The nature of sin, the character of God, the judgments on sin, and then fourth, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, <clears throat> what we see here in this book of Hosea, <clears throat> I think we can all agree, it gets off to a pretty weird start, doesn't it? I mean, right from the get-go, this might not be what we would expect to hear. A verse like verse 2 is not really what we're used to reading in church every Sunday. This is a little unexpected. 
Now, Hosea is called not merely to come preach using words to explain things to people. He is called by God to act out his prophecy in front of the people. He has a a task that's sort of this small little drama that he's given to live it out in his own life, to incarnate God's message to the people, not merely to preach. This is something that we see in many of the other prophets. Ezekiel was once told that he was to cut his hair and divide it into thirds. One third he was to burn, one third he was to smite with a knife, and the other third he was to scatter to the wind. And you can read about that in Ezekiel and learn why the Lord called him to do that. At another time, he was called to make a model of Jerusalem out of bricks and lay on his left side before it for 390 days and then on his right side for 40 days. And you can go to Ezekiel chapter 4 and learn why he was asked to do that. Isaiah might have got one of the worst assignments when he was asked by the Lord to walk naked and barefoot for three years. In contrast, Hosea is not as weird as we thought. It sort of fits in with all the other prophets, doesn't it? But here's Hosea's call from the Lord is that he is told to go out and to marry a prostitute and to have children with her. And when he gives that command immediately in verse 2, he also explains the reason for it. As odd as it is, verse 2, he tells us the reason. He is to go out and find a wife of whoredom. That's the word that ESV uses. Why? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now this has so troubled people over the years that the Lord would ask one of his prophets to do something like this. It's been so troubling to many interpreters that people have come up with different theories to explain what exactly is going on here. Uh, John Calvin didn't think this was actually happening in real life. He said, this is so bizarre that it can only be that this is a vision that the Lord has given Hosea, in which perhaps he was sleeping one night and received this vision in which the Lord asked him to do this. John Calvin couldn't bring himself to think that this might have happened in real life. One of my professors in seminary uh, understood this woman of adultery, is what the NIV, I believe, says. He understood this in a more metaphorical sense. That is, she was to be a woman who came from a land that was characterized by unfaithfulness to God. He thought that Hosea was a southerner from Judah and Gomer was a northerner from uh, Israel and therefore uh, Hosea was called to marry a northerner. A southerner being called to marry a northerner who can imagine such a thing. And and he softened the blow of what this text reads by by explaining it away that way. Unfortunately, neither of those explanations really do justice to when we read it in Hosea and it just reads as it's a historical narrative that this is what God has asked Hosea to do. And as shocking as it is, that's actually the point, isn't it? It's meant to shock us. It's meant to be shocking. It was meant to be shocking to the Israelites who first heard Hosea's message, who, who knew him and saw him do this thing. It was meant to shock them. That was actually half the point of it. Indeed, sometimes some of us need to be shocked, don't we? It's easy in our situation. Some of us have grown up in church our whole lives, have sat under the ministry of the word, and yet through all of that, our hearts have never really been changed. Going to church and and doing churchly things and being involved in the Christian community, it's just what we do. It's just what we know. That's just who we are. And, And there's never been that internal change of heart. Perhaps we've become so familiar, so comfortable with the divine realities 
that we're no longer humbled or amazed by the reality that, that God, the infinite God, would have set his love on us before the creation of the world, choosing us in Christ to be his. We're no longer awed by the incarnation of the Son of God humbling himself to come and to become obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. We no longer are dismayed over sin. We no longer weep over our sins. We're no longer uh, shuddering at the thought of holiness or seeking after it. It just, everything just becomes ordinary. We've heard it so many times. We've just lived in this setting for so long that it becomes ordinary and and perhaps what some of us need is not merely to hear the preaching of the word one more time but but in the word now to catch a vision of this man of God this prophet Hosea being called by God to do this utterly unthinkable thing going out and marrying a licentious woman off the street and then hearing God say to Israel that's what our relationship is like that's a picture of us to hear God say, I'm like Hosea and, and I take you for my wife and I love you, but you're unfaithful. You keep wandering off and going to other gods. You would rather live with another god than deal with me and you leave me. And so I'm praying that as that shocking picture is presented here in these verses for us, that that, that will be what God uses, a tool to, to reawaken our heart to give some new life to our, our often lifeless hearts, to give us new joy, to give us new wonder at the goodness of the gospel. That although God can paint such a stark picture that, that's really depressing to look at, but nevertheless, his mercy is what will overcome our faithlessness. So I want not merely shock value in Hosea, but true awakening through the Spirit of God. Hosea was written to a people not completely unlike us. They were living at a time of national political ease. There was not a a large threat that was coming from other nations. And so there was some prosperity. There was ease. There was uh, material comfort and wealth. And as we know, when people live in a time of ease and comfort and prosperity, spiritual standards and religious practices tend to decline. Tend to decline. God knew that would happen. He talks about it in Deuteronomy that people would look at themselves and say, I, myself, have the ability to produce this wealth. Who is the Lord? We read about it in Proverbs, that the, the writer of Proverbs would pray, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. If I have poverty, I may steal and so dishonor the Lord. But if I have riches, I may become self-sufficient and say, who is the Lord? And that's, the, that's what people are living in, is this, self-reliance of prosperity, that they look at everything that they have and say, who is God? I don't need him. I have everything that is necessary for my life right here in front of me. I've earned it for myself. Therefore, Hosea, this prophet, is given a shocking call from God, not merely to preach, but to live out in his own life in front of the people what they need to hear. Their ears and their eyes of their hearts have become so cloudy and dull that they need someone to come and really to shout through the picture of their own life. And it gives us something of the true nature of sin. That's really one of the beauties of Hosea is that it presents for us something of the true nature of what sin really is. Right? That's what verse 2 says. The purpose is to uh, display the nature of Israel's sin to them because they are unfaithful. 
to God. Therefore, Hosea is called to marry an unfaithful woman. And, and so this is what it does. For those of us who are used to thinking of sin merely in sort of religious, theological terms, right? We, right what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Right? We know the, the catechism answer to the question, and as true as that is, we can read Hosea and we recognize that that catechism answer just doesn't capture the emotional agony that's involved in our sin against a personal God who loves us, who cares for us, who has chosen us. It presents sin to us not merely in a religious sort of systematic theology sort of categories. <clears throat> it presents our sin in relational categories. It says when we sin against God, that's like a wife who leaves her husband and goes to someone else. It's that shocking. And, and, and we see that God is not simply a law to be obeyed. He's a personal God to be loved and cherished. Sin is not just a technical infraction of the rules, but it's betrayal, distrust, insult. It's a slap in the face. We have to understand that our sin is not just generic disobedience, but it is sin against God. That's what David recognizes. Against you and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. There is always someone being hurt by our sin, and it's the Lord. You say this is... This is that Old Testament. This is why I don't read the prophets. It's ugly. It's, it's grotesque. It's so stark. And yet, we read this in the New Testament as well. If you read James 4.4, 4, this stood out to me more this week. James 4.4, 4, James says, You adulterous people, as he's bringing them to the conviction of their sin, he uses the same imagery. That when we sin, that is adultery against the Lord. It's spiritual adultery. Hosea presents our relationship to God in <clears throat> these most personal terms. It, it's shocking in its picture of sin, but it's also shocking in some of the emotional, personal, loving language that Hosea uses to describe the Lord. We're going to look ahead a little bit when we get to chapter 11, verse 8. <clears throat> the Lord is saying, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Here's this picture of God, not merely as sort of the divine judge way up in heaven. It's a God who loves his people and he sees them in sin and it is breaking his heart. He's saying, how can I give you up? Although justice is leading him to bring uh, destruction on his people, that's what they deserve, his heart recoils within him. He says, my compassion grows warm and tender. It's the picture, truly, of, of a father, of a mother who loves his people. He cannot give up on them. Hosea 14, uh, verse 8, again, he says, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Or even chapter 2, verse 14, when he speaks, to Israel, saying, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. You hear the way God speaks so tenderly and compassionately towards his people. 
not merely in judgment of what they deserve, but to say to them how he loves them, how he will continue even now to pursue his people. Though they wander away in sin, God says, I still love them, I will still go after them, and I will still woo them back to myself. That's what I love about Hosea. Is it, 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 it's not uh, deeply theological in the, the academic, scholastic sense, but it's, it's deep in its personal theology presenting this relationship of us and God so that we will have a greater understanding of the love of God for us. You see, one of the greatest dangers of the Christian life is that you can understand God and not love him. Maybe you respect Jesus, but you don't long to be conformed to his image. You can know and study and even defend the Bible, but not humble yourself before it and submit to it. And you can avoid sin without hating sin. See, and what Hosea does for us is it it is working on our hearts with this imagery to get us to not only avoid sin, but to hate sin. To understand the nature of it. To understand how God sees it. It's like we're seeing it now from his perspective. Because people can avoid sin for all sorts of reasons. They don't want the consequences. They don't want to hurt other people who they love. They don't want to... <clears throat> endanger their professional trajectory or lose respect. <clears throat> but Christians are never called to avoid sin because they want to avoid the consequences. We're called to see sin from God's perspective and, and to understand just the ugliness of it. To learn to feel the horror of our sins. You see, we read these first few verses of Hosea and we hear God's call to Hosea and most of us are are honestly just a little bit horrified by that. That God is calling one of his prophets to do this thing that's so unthinkable. I mean, commentators even struggle with this. Is it real? Maybe it's just a vision. How can God do this? And yet, that, that's actually the point. That horror that we feel is it wants to teach us and to lead us to this point where we begin to feel that same kind of horror about our sins. That's what it's pointing us to. That's what it's giving us a picture of. So that when we start to think now in our minds and we enter into these times of temptation that we all face, that that we begin to feel that same shudder of horror that we should do a thing like this in the face of our God. That we can begin to think of this from his perspective and to say, is this how we would treat one who loves us as he loves us? That we would no longer treasure what we think of as respectable sins, There's nothing respectable about any of these. We listen to the language here of verse 2. And that's language we don't feel very good about, is it? That's language we don't really even like reading in church. We feel ashamed to hear these words. We don't want our kids to hear these words. I think what Hosea gives us is a good, solid reminder in these first couple verses that we can't sanitize the doctrine of sin. It's impossible to sanitize the doctrine of sin, to make it any less horrifying than it is, to make it any less personal than it is. Now, in as much as he's showing us that, the nature of sin, let's see what else he shows us and recognize he also shows us something of the character of God in this message. Even in this first action that God calls Hosea to do, It doesn't only give us a picture of sin, it also gives us a picture of the character of God, doesn't it? We see a woman who's unfaithful, but 
we also see a man who, who goes out and intentionally decides to love her, to marry her, to take her home as his own. See, see, the bad news is that we're being pictured here as Gomer. I know a lot of people will read the first part of Hosea, and, and especially as Christians, they think, oh, this is tough. The lesson is that God sometimes is going to call me to do really difficult things, and I might not want to do that. See, we, we think we're Hosea. But it's worse than that because we're not Hosea being called to do difficult things. It says we're Gomer. And God actually is doing the difficult but loving thing. But that's the good news. That's the good news of Hosea is that God is this loving, faithful husband. The, the scripture presents him as this throughout uh, the scripture. Oftentimes in Christian weddings we'll, we'll talk of this. We'll talk of Isaiah 62 as the bridegroom uh, rejoices over his bride so shall your God rejoice over you. Or we think of Ephesians 5 and Christ and his love for the church. It's less common at Christian weddings to go to Hosea and to say, Here, here's the reality of the divine wedding that, that is a picture of ourselves and our spiritual lives and our churches. But we see the, the perseverance of this merciful God who just doesn't give up on us. <clears throat> Later in the story, it's going to get even uglier. Because Hosea has gone and he's found this woman, Gomer, and he's married her and he's had children with her. And she's going to leave. She will leave Hosea. She'll go back out to walking the streets for money again. And God will speak to Hosea again and he'll say, Hosea, go out and find her. Go out and find her. And she will have gotten herself into so much trouble that she has actually been enslaved and there will be a price that Hosea has to pay to win her back. He can't his own wife, he can't take her for free. He'll pay that price and he will take her back to his house and he will say, you must dwell as mine for many days. You can't leave. And, and see, it, it, it's more grotesque in the picture of sin, but it's more loving and merciful in the picture of this God who simply does not give up on us, whose love will never let us go, who chases after us, even paying a price when necessary, a steep price, to buy back his own bride. And so we see something of, of the love of God and the mercy of God in Hosea that, that goes far deeper than anything we're used to thinking of. Now what we also see is the effects of sin. <clears throat> and there's some logic here, just as marriage leads to children, so sin leads to judgment. As we go through Hosea, mercy and judgment are always intermingled. We go from one to the other. And even here in chapter 1, <clears throat> we see something of the mercy of God mingled in with these descriptions of sin and of judgment. Hosea and Gomer have three children together. We read in verse 4, When the first son is born, the Lord says to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And so Jezreel, we can read about that story. It's 2 Kings chapter 10. Uh, Jehu was the king of Israel. He was one of many evil kings the northern kingdom of Israel had. <clears throat> and because he was high-minded, because he was adulterous, because he did not uh, humble himself before the Lord, God is bringing justice and judgment on his house. Jezreel means scattered. It means scattered. 
And so here's the prophet. He gives his son a name, and the name is Scattered. <clears throat> because Israel is going to be scattered. The second child he has, verse 6, she conceived again. Many commentators point out, Hosea is not mentioned in this part of the process. We don't know. We don't know whose son this is going to be or whose daughter this will be. But Gomer conceives and, and bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. No Mercy. Lo Ruhama. You say it in Hebrew, it almost sounds pretty. Lo Ruhama. But it means no mercy. We, we tend to name people, uh, girls grace sometimes. This means graceless. No grace. Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. These are not words you want to hear the Lord speak to you. I will no more have mercy. And you wonder what it's like to only get what you deserve from the Lord rather than to receive grace and mercy. That's what we're used to. That's what we're so comfortable with. We tend to take it for granted. We think it's our right to receive his mercy until the prophet has a son ah, or a daughter. Oh, what's, what's her name? She's beautiful. Her name is no mercy. Oh, that's interesting. Why, why is that? The Lord's not going to have mercy on you anymore. Okay, have a great day. He's giving him these children specific names to shock the people again and to, to wake up their hearts. The, uh, Derek Kidner, one of the commentators, just reminds us that prophetic oracles like this, they're not the final word. They're warnings. Just like Jonah would go and preach doom to Nineveh, but they repent and the Lord relents. So it is with this. This is not the final word that the Lord will never have mercy on them again, but it is a warning that if they continue down the path they are going, they will not find mercy from the Lord anymore. Verse 8, <clears throat> it gets worse. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Lo ami in Hebrew, not my people. In one sense, perhaps this is just the facts of the case, that Israel has moved on. They've gone to other gods. They're not God's people anymore. They've wandered away. But it's also a word of prophetic judgment on them, that they are no longer God's people who have a claim on his love, who have a claim on his mercy. I think this is the hardest one, because this is the promise that God has made from the very beginning, that you will be my people, and I will be your God. And we hear it all through the prophets, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, when in the new heavens and the new earth, that we will be his people and he will be our God. And yet at this point in Israel's history, God looks at them and he says, you're not my people. I'm not your God. That's, there's a fourth name here. It's God's name. Not your God. There's severity in this. <clears throat> I think any Israelite who had a, a pulse would have shuddered to hear this word of judgment to hear and to see what Hosea was doing in this. Can you imagine what it would be like if God resolved to always give us what we deserve rather than to give us his mercy, to give us his grace, to give us more of his love? But we've gotten to the end of verse 9 now and we get to verse 10 and everything turns around. Everything turns around with no warning in verse 10 when it gets to restoration and he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. 
which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. And so immediately after God is pronouncing these prophecies of judgment on his people, almost in the same breath he turns around and says, okay, there's going to be mercy. You will still be my people. I think, I think if you're a parent, you begin to understand this. That even though you see your children disobey and you know the judgment and the punishment and the consequences that they fully deserve, it breaks your heart to have to give them to him. And, and sometimes you can almost at least in your better moments, barely get out the punishment before your heart is drawn out after them in compassion and you say again, okay, you're my people. And you come after them in love and pursue them again and reassure them of your grace again. And that's what God is doing here for his people. No sooner does he get out his judgments than his heart is drawn out again towards them. His compassion warms towards them. It seems like a, a very human emotion almost to, to know that you should be pursuing justice and at the same time feeling compassion and desiring mercy, but, but that is God's parental warm love towards his people. That is how he feels about his people whom he's chosen, that he loves us. <clears throat> I, I think the question, though, in this chapter is how do you get from the end of verse 9 to the beginning of verse 10 so quickly, this 180 that the prophet does, announcing judgment to announcing restoration, and there's nothing in the middle. And, and for the most part, I believe the answer has come a little bit later in the book. But part of the answer is this, that although our sin, as he presents it, is far worse than we understand it to be, the other truth is that God's mercy, his compassion towards his people is far, far deeper than we think it to be. That God's love towards his people never ceases. See, the book of Hosea doesn't only give us the shocking reality of sin, it gives us the equally shocking reality of God's mercy. God's mercy which never gives up on us. See, God doesn't call Hosea to go and to find a prostitute on the street and to preach to her. He calls Hosea to go and to find this woman and to marry her and to bring her home, to make her his, to have children, to, to turn her into a family with him. Do you know that this word Hosea is the other name we haven't talked about? Hosea, in Hebrew, if we were reading it properly, it's, it's Hosea, and it comes from the same root as the name Joshua, and it comes from the same root as the word Jesus, the name that means salvation, deliverance, God rescues. That that's who Hosea is, and that's the message that he prophesies. You see, here's what Hosea does. Hosea, as a prophet, is called not merely to preach. He is called in his own life to incarnate, to flesh out, to live out in front of all the people, God's love for lost sinners. God's love for lost sinners. He's a prophet who comes not merely to preach to sinners, but to live out the love of God for those sinners, to show that God is a God who does not give up on lost sinners, but he takes them and makes them his. He brings them home. 
You see, later in the story, indeed, 700 years later in the story, another prophet will come to Israel who is also called to incarnate the love of God for lost sinners, who is also one who loves prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. He loves the unclean. He loves the lepers. He would show them a love that at times makes us uncomfortable, that Jesus would come to us in our sin and our shame and our sorrow and bring us to himself, take us into his family, make us his. And when we are prone to wander away, he will come after us. So this is one step further than even the prodigal son. The father rejoices when the son comes back. In this story, he goes out after us. He chases us down through the dark canyons that we get ourselves into at the cost of his own life. See, Hosea indeed, Hosea must have felt the sentence of death being asked to call out, to act out this prophecy. But Jesus truly did take the sentence of death upon himself. He didn't just talk about loving people. He came and acted it out. Acted out what it would mean for God to love sinners in his justice and in his mercy. How can God accomplish this, to love sinners the way he did? Over these next 14 weeks or so, we will miss the point of Hosea if we don't see that he's pointing us to Christ. That he's pointing us to Christ, he's helping us to see that our sin is against him, helping us to see his mercy and love shown at the cross, and helping us to see that it's only through Christ that God can look at us who had no right to be his people, and he can say to us, you are my people, children of the living God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Because he took on himself all of these names, all of the judgments that were against us, he took on himself. This is both the the difficult news and the good news of Hosea. The difficult news is Hosea spares no words, no pictures, no actions in, in calling us to see the reality of sin. But he also spares no expense, as it were, in helping us to see the love of God calling us to understand that God loves us in our sin, comes after us, and would send his son to die for us in order that we might still be his people. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we're so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful that in, in Christ we can have the confidence to read a book like Hosea and have the confidence to honestly admit that of ourselves we deserve all of the judgments against us but looking to our savior who took each and every one upon his own shoulders and paid the price completely in order that you might be gracious looking on us and saying you who were once no people at all you are now my people father would you teach us would your spirit be our instructor would you give us humble hearts to receive your word spoken to us today for it's in the name of christ amen